Welcome to Tomorrow's News, the podcast that cuts through the noise on venture capital and alternative investing. I'm Lucy Du, and I'm here to guide you through the exciting and ever-changing world of investing with my co-host, Gavin Ezekowitz, the co-founder of BFA Global Investors. Together, we bring you our take on the hottest discussions in growth investing and global markets, from Silicon Valley startups to the burgeoning markets in Asia and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, join us as we dive deep into the world of alternative investing. Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Good afternoon, everybody. Lucy, pleasure to be with you again. Gangs all together, except I'm here in California. Good afternoon. It's late afternoon here. It's gloomy, but it's not gloomy in the market. Always a pleasure to speak to Ronnie Green. He and I have had 15 minutes of debate already before this has begun. So I think it's going to be a rich conversation. Ronnie, as everybody knows, runs a global liquid credit fund. He's had phenomenal performance through the first part of this year, vastly outperforming the benchmark. And I think that he and I disagree, though. I think we disagree. I think he's a little more hawkish than I am. And before we get into my views, I'm going to kick it over to Ronnie to say, Ronnie, you know, we had FOMC yesterday. We probably pitched the story exactly the way you'd love it. What did you see out of that? And where does that sort of set your view on a go-forward basis? What a confusing pause, right? Seriously. I mean, like... Anyway, thanks for having me on. It's great to be back and talking with you, Gavin and Lucy. So yeah, look, it was the most kind of like well-telegraphed skip, I guess, in the history of skips. But yeah, like I think the surprise was they penciled in a couple more hikes for this year, which the market was not pricing in. I think they'll be hard-pressed to get two more hikes out, Gavin. Maybe one. I'm thinking at the moment, Jackson Hole, it's kind of coming up in August. And I'm just thinking like starting to ruminate that that's the great opportunity for the Fed to say we're sufficiently restrictive here. And I think they can get there because real rates, as we've spoken, I don't want to get too jargony or technical, but I think real rates will start to really start biting at the front end. So you've got nominals where they are at the Fed. You've got inflation probably coming down. So then real yields kind of rise. So they're kind of getting more restrictive just by standing still. So I think at that point, you get restrictive. Things start to slow down, inflation kind of moves into target, and they're just preparing the market for a lengthy pause, I would say. That's my best guess, and maybe one more hike this year. And by the way, they've been so wrong, the Fed, so don't trust the dot plots, man. Like They are consistently wrong on their dot plots. Before this call, we were talking, and I said, you know, all of the sticky people were transitory people, right? Wrong, wrong, wrong. All the bears, wrong, 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 wrong. So where we agree is that there is definitely a period here where the Fed may at the margin want to do a little more, but it might be a little bit more about messaging than it is about about real rates. So I think your comment on Jackson Hole is a wise one. Where I think it's incredibly interesting here, though, is to contemplate something that not many people are talking about, which is 
that frankly, the recession happened really in Q4 of 22. And we now are going to get the Goldilocks soft landing. We're not going to get this mega recession. We're going to keep cruising on a relatively benign GDP growth rate through 23, into 24. The Fed's not going to cut rates, but we're just sort of going to bob along here. Now, how does that square with what you see and how you're trading the market? Firstly, I don't know if you can see my screen here. I hope you can. So for all the sticky people out there, fine. But the market is priced in that the Fed's going to win this battle against inflation. So if you look throughout the treasury curve, this is showing where the market is pricing in inflation. So the whole curve is pricing around 2% inflation. So to have a view that inflation is going to be sticky and it's going to stay at three or four or like whatever the case is in your mind, like that's an non-consensus view at the moment. So the market is pricing. So you're not going to win on a higher inflation or on a lower inflation view. I think that's kind of like the market settled that the Fed's going to get there. Having said that, I think what is unclear at the moment and from a macro perspective, which is actually quite interesting, Gavin, because I think like all the returns from indices at the moment are getting driven by this crazy amount of rates volatility. Like treasuries are moving 10 basis points a day. So like credit is like very, very well behaved. That's the rate side. So the key kind of like macro view at the moment is where basically where the Fed ends up and how restrictive they need to stand given that this the market kind of buys that they're going to have 2% inflation. So look, I think the crux of it is there's same old story. I think there's plenty of safe yield at the very front end. I mean, rates are up 50 basis points like since the beginning of like the yep. two years back to like 475-ish, right? So right. It's tons and tons of yield. Like we're back to levels pre-Silicon Valley Bank now. So the market's kind of like priced in this higher for longer. I know you like that H4L kind of acronym. We're in in H4L. The market's priced it in. The two years are a great barometer of where the Fed's going to be. And I think we're just like hide at the front end now and earn the carry. I think we're in a good spot. I, I also agree with you, Gavin. I don't think we're going to recession in the US. I think it's a soft landing type scenario. And we're just in a period of kind of like low GDP, right? And it's the question is for the markets is, you know, what is the level of policy rates that keeps inflation at 2%? And that's the million dollar question that everyone's thinking about. Is it 5% or is it 3%? I mean, the Fed's kind of penciled in their long-term Fed funds rate at 2.5%. So when do we get there and how much pain do we need to take until that duration trade really wins? Yeah, what it suggests, we had all kinds of guys thrown on tons of duration. I mean, I wonder how Grundlife's doing with his long duration, short S&P. It must be pretty unpleasant over there in West LA. So I think what it suggests that makes it hard is that you don't want to own duration here. We talked about my TLTs, which are doing okay for the moment, but it could be scary days there because the yield curve, which is inverted at the moment, which is suggesting recession, If it becomes clearer that we are not going to get recession, we're going to get a steepening yield curve. And we're not going to get that steepening with Fed cuts until some point way deep in 24. Mm -hmm. So that just means that longer bonds are going to have to sell off. Now, tell me about what happens then if you're all of these corporates that are refining, particularly those with weaker credit, into the back part of 23, the early part of 24. How does that look in terms of both absolute level and spread? What's your view? 
Yeah. So basically on absolute level, I think when the 10 year in the US kind of gets towards that 4% level, I think that's kind of like the buy area. I think we were close to that. Mm. And yeah, that's kind of like my key level. So yeah, so that's on the nominal side. On the spread side, things are very tight. I think people are really buying to the narrative that you know, fixed income is a great place to be at the moment. Like there's plenty of yield around. There's still a lot of people that are very worried about recessionary risks. And if there is a recession, you probably want duration. That's the trade. We're seeing big inflows into credit still. We're seeing big inflows into general government bonds. So yeah, look, I think from my perspective, there will be a time to own duration. I think as we get towards Jackson Hole, which is kind of late August, if I'm not wrong, I think that's the time to kind of add a bit of duration. I think that's the time that maybe inflation, CPI type prints will start really declining. Growth will start declining. Employment will maybe start stabilizing and loosening up a bit in that market. And then you might start winning on that duration trade. But I think like to your point, you've got to be very, very careful on duration at the moment. So I think, look, the good thing about my markets is we've repriced, right? Like things have cheapened up significantly. There's lots of yield, unlike the private markets. A lot of the lesser quality stuff has gone into the loan market and the private credit market. So the markets in the liquid side are very high quality at the moment. A lot of the leveraged loan market took a lot of the high yield issuance. So that's kind of like taken out of the market, which is a great side, a great thing for us because we're very high quality. So I think, look, going forward, there's lots of really strong potential for very high quality bonds. There's a very, very solid return potential. I mean, the cure for for higher yields is higher yields. So I think we will get a very strong rally in the fixed income markets towards the end of this year when that duration trade plays out. You've got to be patient. I mean, I said to somebody the other day, the new board apes trade is private credit. Like mm-hmm. people are aping into private credit, like there's never going to be a recession, which my perspective on that, and it was well articulated by a family office investor I had breakfast with this morning. It's like, well, hang on a second. I got a hundred million bucks. Why would I take the risk on a net 12% when I can wander around all day in government bonds at five-ish? Exactly. And if you want to buy some high quality corporates, mix it in, maybe I got another couple of hundred basis points. That's plenty. I can almost look. Yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me to be in private credit, especially a lot of the lesser quality issuance left the public markets and went to the private markets. And there's a reason it went there. And the reason is that the public markets wouldn't stomach it. They've loosened the covenants on a lot of those private loans. So they got away with a lot less covenant light products. So the public markets won't go for that. The other great thing about the public markets is the liquidity. So when the private stuff does reprice, there will be lots of opportunities in private credit. I don't think it's yet. And you can use the public market money to buy the private credit stuff. So I just don't think the trade makes sense now from a relative value sense, to your point. And also from like, you know, even if there is a slowdown towards the end of the year, you're in trouble with the private credit stuff, in my opinion. In addition, and just the last point I'll make on private credit is all the issuance was floating rate. So all the leverage loan space. So the Fed funds rate at 5%, if you're paying another, say, 500, 600 basis points on top of that, like you double digits, right? So it's very painful. So that's why prudent high yield companies want to lock in funding for as long as possible at a fixed rate, right? That makes sense for their business. But you know, if you've got floating rate liabilities for these companies, it can be uh, it's really painful now, really, really painful. Yeah. As I've observed, 
with some folks, many of whom disagree with me, is that find me a company that can comfortably cover the interest and repayment of principal on a 15% loan that's material on their balance sheet. If it's a tiny loan, it's whatever, but if it's material, most companies just don't have those kinds of returns on capital, returns on equity to cover that. Really what you're doing is greater fool and it requires a, a very buoyant equity market. It's funny, investors often reach for yield at the time where they least need to reach for yield. We face a little bit of pushback when we talk to people about your fund because they're like, it's sort of when we we're at zero and someone gave them 5%, they were like, oh my God, I've died and gone to heaven. Now you can get 5% without any risk. And people are like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not going to work for me anymore. Now I got to get 12. It is wrongheaded thinking. The other point, I think the evidence would be in markets that, and again, I'm very bullish. I'm bullish about, more bullish about equities than I am about bonds, is that after periods that look like this in terms of a strong, buoyant equity market, a robust period of, of capital allocation, of bears getting buried, of people FOMOing into AI and whatever, you get a period of digestion. Digestion often looks like volatility. People will predict the end of the world and so forth. It is probably just digestion and we're going to be higher six to 12 months out. But digestion can mean some of those big days, those two and a half percent days on the S&P. They can look pretty ugly. And where that period remains in place for some time, it makes refinancing very hard. In all markets, I've observed for folks that one of the advantages of the approach you take is that you do have almost perfect liquidity. I think you could probably liquidate every long position in your fund in a day. And if things for some reason got really scary, you could go to 80% short end and, and wait it out. Those that are deployed in illiquid markets just don't have that option. They've got to ride out the company's experience. Absolutely. Yeah, look, it's an advantage of being in a liquid market. We have the mark to market, but yeah, you, the trade-off is the liquidity, which is fantastic. So the other point I just want to highlight, Gavin, is we had some really strong employment numbers out of Australia yesterday. So the yield curve shifted materially higher in Australia too. So, you know, markets pricing in more RBA pain trades. So I think Australia's in a bit of a different position to the US. As everyone knows, everyone's on floating rate mortgages. Lucy and I actually had a discussion about this for one of her prospects, the best trade to do or the best way to think about hedging out risks from a mortgage side. But yeah, look, I think the Australian economy is super sensitive to the RBA cash rate. So there might be an even better duration trade in Australia if the RBA is kind of like forced into a corner with really strong employment numbers, much higher inflation here than in the US, then they may be forced to hike into a really bad kind of economic situation. So, and lastly, valuations, the 10-year rate in Australia is now higher than the US rate. So there's value there as well. So something, another thing that we're thinking about here. I think the real question there is, look, all central banks are somewhat politically aware. We have to recognize that. It would just appear to me that the RBA is the most conscious of political pushback. And they've had great air cover. Who would have predicted that house prices would continue to rally? Absolutely. I, mean, I spoke to a guy who runs one of the largest realtors in Australia, 
And I can tell you, he has been absolutely gobsmacked by how strong the market is. So he would have expected it's more like what he's finding in New Zealand, which is a chaos, right? It's a disaster. So it's going to be interesting if we begin to really see some of that pain. What do, does the RBA keep their foot on the brake? I yeah. don't know. I mean, obviously, you're yeah, saying look, you think this. Yeah, look, we're at 410 on the cash rate here in Sydney, in Australia. December 23 is priced at 4.6, right? So another couple of hikes are now priced into the market. That could lead to some pain locally, right? So I think also you've got to keep in mind that cash rates in the US are way higher than, than here. So we're, we're talking about well over 5% in the US. New Zealand, they're at five and a half, which by the way, has caused a recession with still high inflation. So I think the RBA is in a bit of a tough spot at the moment, and it's going to take some concerted action from the government and the RBA to kind of move inflation down without too much pain. This is where I think maybe Australia, New Zealand, UK are structurally a little different. And I don't have the analysis, and it's sadly too anecdotal, that you've got a somewhat more politicized wage settlement process in Australia. You effectively allow the unions to to rate set against inflation, which is unfortunately has a reinforcing mechanism built into it, whereas you just don't have that in the US. So I think what we've built in, unfortunately, in a lot of these countries, we've got a stronger backdrop of obviously low unemployment and an inflation which feeds on itself in terms of wage pressure. You get these settlements higher and you're chasing your tail. And I think that's what we've seen. Every central bank that paused has had to come back. Now, the one that doesn't work in this model, by the way, is Canada, because Canada is more like the US. It is massive immigration, and it's had the same problem. If you want to call me, you're probably wrong on the US. It's that the US follows Canada, where this inflation is stickier, and in fact, with real incomes higher, it actually gets going again. We actually don't see any slowdown. And when we start to see the economy effectively reaccelerating for the next couple of months, and then your Jackson Hole scenario, it's just basically a return to the same speech. To pull Absolutely. out the old one again, right? Absolutely. Again, so the volatility in the rates market is enormous. Throughout my career, it hasn't been this high for decades. And that's partly because of the vol suppression that the all the central banks were kind of going through, right, with quantitative easing and whatnot, that's gone away. So the bond market's trying to figure out what the rates are. And that's all reflected in everything that we've been discussing, CPI, growth, everything. So I think that duration call is kind of like crucial, at least for me, and it's kind of like top of mind. Having said that, like credit spreads, they're, they're really tight at the moment. I think people recognize that credit's a great place to be. They recognize that corporate balance sheets are in great shape and they recognize that there's plenty of yield out there, right? So money's flowing in, keeping spreads tight. For me, again, so I'll take some small duration bets, very small, but just harvest the yield at the front end. I can get that kind of like six to eight percent or 8% portfolio yield over the year, over the course of the year. It's not, don't need to take much risk anymore. So I think it's a great place. Like, as I've said before, cash is not trash anymore, Gavin, you know, like, it really is. No, I, so I agree. I the agree. bar and is I, very high. The bar is very high to take duration risk or to take liquidity risk. Absolutely. I, is that a way to summarize it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think 
It's a good market to be playing chicken. And, and if people want to get gutsy, they can follow me for equity market <laughs> insights such as they are. But I think that it's not the right time to be leaning on duration. And I think you've really nailed it. Yeah. So for you looking out over the next month or six weeks, are there a couple of key markers that you've got in terms of either data or upcoming events or things you're sort of watching for as you try to make an assessment here? Yeah, look, the Fed speak, I think, is kind of like what I'm really on top of at the moment. So we had that kind of like, as we spoke about earlier, that kind of weird skip. So we'll just see how the Fed messages things, right? And yeah, it's just the employment and the CPI data. Those are the kind of like the two crucial things. And definitely the CPI data is the most crucial here, for sure. I think some leading surveys like the ISMs, et cetera, they're starting to kind of roll over. I think like service, like manufacturing is already pretty weak in the US. If services PMI, leading indicators like the LEI start to kind of really roll over, I think people start to get a bit nervous about a material slowdown and how that leads into kind of pricing pressures. If you ask me what kind of keeps me up at night the most, that's a strange worry, Gavin. It's like these rates won't be around for long. I think over time, we're not going to 10% on the Fed funds, but we could be going back to zero if there is a recession coming. So this reinvestment risk is kind of a bit of a concern for me. I want to lock in these higher rates at the front end where possible. Because I'm really worried about reinvestment risk, Evan. You know, that's kind of top of mind for me at the moment. It's a great point. I think it's why you sort of got your finger on the trigger there in terms of that 10-year. For all you kids playing at home, it's hard to do that well. I would say everybody thinks they're quite clever, but it's hard to position yourself in the names with the timing, with a portfolio composition that is very capital preservation aware to kind of capture that opportunity. It sounds easy, but it's a skill and we sure appreciate you for it. So thank well, look, you, thanks so much, Ronnie. You've had a great start to the year. Let's make sure it continues. We'll catch up in a few weeks, of course. And in the meantime, we'll continue our battle over WhatsApp. Okay, thank you. All right, such a pleasure. Take care. Thanks, thanks, Bye. Bye. Thanks, Lucy. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Tomorrow's News on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.